It's time to cowboy up again. And here in Wyoming in the winter, the air gets a little bit thin and it gets just a little bit chillier. What a great time to sit around and, and have a conversation. And our conversation about hit strategies, and no, that's not strategies to hit students, strategies to engage students, was so good, so powerful, so warming to our inside. We had to have a part two to that. So I got some cowboys and cowgirls riding with me. How you doing today, Joe? James, I'm doing great. Uh, just enjoying a bowl of chili here. Sun went down. You know how it goes. Ah, perfect. And in that first conversation, our, our horses took off a little fast and we and we left Maya, but she, she rode fast to get caught up. How you doing today, Maya? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation today. So in conversation number one, we talked about some of those kind of big teaching strategies across education, having that clear focus, having direct instruction, uh, having active learning, and how to give feedback. We talked about all some of those different pieces if that, of, of, of those processes, if you will. So today we're going to dive in with multiple exposure. So for all the photographers out there, I don't even know what that means to a photographer. Multiple exposures. So how do we practice? How do we do those things without boring our kids, without becoming just a game of repetition and it becoming something that we learn? We think about sports. In basketball, you have to get that form down. You have to get muscle memory. You can't just be a good shooter by making one shot. You can't just be an expert in any content area by just passing one test or getting one question right. So multiple exposures brings up all of these things. How do we, how do we attack these things? So what do you got for us, Joe? How do we attack this? Well, James, you know, back in the day, I would stand at the free throw line and, and just chuck a hundred of them in the gym. Uh, and, you know, I wanted, I wanted to make it, um, automatic. You know, you start to think about these words like automaticity. Uh, you also want to practice those free throws, uh, you know, every other week or every week, you know, every Friday you get in the gym and do that kind of thing. It's the same thing for learning new vocabulary, uh, learning, um, you know, more, more uh, in-depth concepts that require a little more practice, a little more skill to them. And so, you know, some folks might call that space practice. I'd also throw out there, you know, you want to you wanna practice like you're testing. So if your tests are multiple choice, you also want to do your practice like multiple choice. Um, and the last thing I'll say, and I'll hand this off to Maya, I love the spiral curriculum. And, and so when we think about multiple exposures in our curriculum, not just in a week, uh, not just in a day, but we want to come back to concepts and explore them in more depth uh, as, as we go through our curriculum through the months uh, and even the year. Joe, I really like what you're saying about the spiral curriculum and thinking about complex concepts and being able to revisit those ideas as you move through, you know, a few weeks or even a whole semester. I think that that allows students to build not just that muscle memory, right, or that that knowledge memory, right, that you're talking about, but also confidence. And as you were originally talking, I was thinking about learning how to use a piece of software, 
you can poke around and, and make it do what you want, but as you get the hang of it, you build that confidence. And so I think that applies to, you know, this idea in general about rehearsing and reviewing and, you know, the repetition that we build into our curriculum, it's not just learning, but it's also that confidence in our students to, to have a command of the content that they're working with. So I was really curious, um, James, what does it look like in your classroom? Looks like chaos. That's all I can say. It looks like chaos. But uh, that brings we that question leads me right into this. Today we're gifted with so much in technology, which you know we've talked about and we continue to talk about in our other conversations. But there's so many other tools that that we have at our disposal that teachers 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago didn't necessarily have those exact same tools. Uh, we used to use flashcards. We used to use uh, those kind of memory type games and, and how to help kids be able to retrieve that information. And, and now we have amazing tech tools that we can a kid can uh, connect on with their phone or their iPad or their computer, and they can play games uh, with different, uh, whatever the latest current game is, we can embed that into their uh, multiple exposure and kind of that retrieval process. I'll, and, and to directly answer your question, Maya, in my classroom right now, I've got students uh, playing a game that's similar to Among Us. And uh, I, I don't know what the college level, but at the junior high and high school level, Among Us is the game that kids are truly just gravitating to and playing. And we have lots of issues trying to get them not to play during cl uh, class and school. So figuring out a way to embed that into what we're doing and give them a chance to connect pieces while they're learning that and and, and getting some repetition some rep uh, some some retrieval skills working on that free throw if you will and joe i understand why you're a college professor because if you only practice free throws once a week that that probably tells me why you're a professor not a call uh, not not in the nba right now so let's move on to our next point to discuss application Okay, how do we apply, how do we have kids today apply what they're learning? Applying what it looked like, same, same kind of idea 10, 20, 30 years ago looks different than it does in 2020, where you've got tech tools and, and, and all of these virtual ways to adapt. What does it look like? What does great application look like now? Well, James, I mean, you hit on it. it it's not the over-redundancy of uh, continued automatic like math facts and so on and so forth. It actually might seem more like uh, some of those virtual reality uh, places like SimCity, uh, um, even a Minecraft world that they create or a Second Life world that they might create. It's about putting student information, allowing student to use information in a novel real-world context and then be able to problem-solve within that real-world context. You know, it's like, it, it's the so what? You know, why are we learning these algorithms? Why are we learning geometry? Uh, it's the so what? It's putting it into a real-world context. It's that transfer learning that we keep saying over and over again, uh, you know, in, in teacher worlds. Uh, but it's actually allowing the students 
to take the information, the new information that they've learned, and then move it to a situation where they can apply it. You know, for me, in, uh, in, when I taught French, I taught some foreign language, um, I could teach them vocab, I could teach them sentences and grammar, and I could do it all day long till I was blue and they were blue too. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't until I learned how to get my students to apply that information into real world context uh, like the Vancouver Olympics or, and, and other uh, real life events that were going on that the students really saw the value of learning that foreign language. And I'm sure Maya, you see this as well, especially with the digital tools uh, that kids are learning to use today. Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about how the multiple exposures just build right into that application. And as your you know, learning the ideas and then you're starting to test them out and be able to apply those ideas in context. And I think thinking about the work that students are doing in classrooms as applied to an authentic audience. And, you know, with technology, you can, you know, build some great graphics or stories or, you know, whatever they're building. But what do you do with them? And as you put them out to share content or use them um, in those authentic ways to solve problems, and I think that, you know, thinking about audience and who's actually going to be engaging with the things that you're building um, really frames that for learners. You, you know, Maya, I'm, I'm going to give you guys a, a perspective from a little bit deeper in the trenches. And here, as, as both of you are talking, I, I so appreciate the, the, when we start talking about applying and giving kids different examples and different ways to share. And I don't think there's any teacher in the world out there that would say that's not, that's not where we want our kids to go. But here's, here's the struggle. Here's the, the truly from the trenches. Kids get so accustomed. So I see kids at a junior high level they get so accustomed to doing what they need to do to jump through the hoop of school. And, and we're talking junior high, by the time they get to fourth and fifth grade, they are very quickly asking the question, is this graded? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to get past it, get a grade, you know, move on, all of those things. So that, that piece of all of this awesomeness we have is a struggle within the structure of how, maybe maybe it's a structure of how we evaluate schools. That kids get caught into, yeah, this sounds like a really fun project, but I just want to jump through the hoop, get done. Can I have an A for turning in this thing exactly as you asked for it with the exact rubric, laying out exactly what I'm doing? No, please don't ask me to think. I'm going to just continue through this process um, that, that I think that, that we've got some teachers out there that are like, yeah, this, this stuff sounds good. And we all agree it sounds good, but really getting that, that true connection to our kids to where they start to see the value in, in the opportunities we're trying to let them share it with the world, um, expose them to different things and have different means of showing us they don't want different means. They just want to be done with it. 
and 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 maybe that's an engagement piece joe what do you got yeah yeah i mean you start to get into like you know what is an engaging classroom what does an engaging classroom look like what does innovation in the classroom look like alongside of uh accountability right in today's world and you're bringing up you know the kids get good at school by the time they get to college they are really good at school and education majors they're really really good at school you know what i mean and they know how to check the boxes and they know how to get good grades even without you know necessarily getting to a high level of learning and and, and so what do we need to do to upend education and maybe the COVID thing you know we've talked about COVID a lot on here um, maybe the COVID thing was an opportunity for us to try to reimagine school but you know the stress and the technology and all these barriers and so forth but really James um, it's it's about allowing kids to kind of play the game of school but also creating those engaging learning environments uh, that allow kids to take it to the next level. So when we think about that next big point, and Maya, I know with, with your hands you know, right in the middle of teaching, getting our teachers ready to, to head out into the classroom, when we think about cooperative learning, how do we, how, how do we get quality, how do we get teachers to build quality cooperative learning into what they're doing that isn't quality, one person does all the work and the other person just sits there and watches them do all the work? Yeah, I think that that's a tricky thing to balance in a classroom. And it's just like the you know real, real world application we're talking about. It's not something that happens every minute of every day in the classroom. And it's not something that, um, you know, your, your lesson isn't successful unless you get to, you know, this cooperative piece or you have an authentic audience. I think that to keep that engaged in classroom in general, you have to choose wisely what you're going to do when. And to directly answer your question about cooperative learning, I think that you have to build that mindset. You know, I'm a big advocate of project-based learning, and I know that's a conversation for another day, but it's really tricky to do any kind of project-based learning or constructionist um, work in a classroom without working with each other. And just as students are, you know, learning their math problems or, you know, reading literature, they're also learning how to work with each other. If we think about the grown-up world, for lack of a better descriptor, people have to work with other people all the time in lots of different contexts. And so cooperative learning is a life skill that, you know, while you're working on your math or you're working on a social studies project, and you're you know, in a team and you have individual responsibilities, those interactions mirror things that we have to do as adults every day. Well, first off, you talked about the grown-up world, Maya. I don't know, when I get there, um, I'll let you know what I think of the grown-up world, but I try to stay away, I try to, st try to stay away from that. But when, when you talk about that idea of cooperative, there's that, that balance point of competition. Uh, so we work together, but there's that competition point to how do we push ourselves to keep getting, you know, keep improving at that level. And there's, you know, the, the beauty of school, I, I don't know that we're going to give everybody an answer on this one, but then you've got the reverse where if it's too competitive, kids check out. So Joe, what's your take on that cooperative 
competitive connection? Well, I can tell you, um, I like to mix it up. You know, I, first off, I, I want to harken back to what Maya said. I love to teach children how to do uh, things cooperatively. Now, I don't get as much of a chance at the, at the tertiary level, but every time uh, I began a year and started doing cooperative learning, because I'm a big Vygotskyan, I'm, I'm a really big, you know, social constructivist, and I love cooperative learning activities, but I always had to teach the kids, you know, we had to set ground rules, you know, about respect for each other, about listening to the minority opinion, about how to take turns, how to how to evaluate each other, how to evaluate the group as a whole. There's a whole big world of cooperative learning on this, and 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 then you know then you build in you know competitive games and little aspects there, right? And these things build uh, confidence. You know, and, and that might that might, you know, when we talk about confidence, you know, not necessarily self-esteem, maybe, uh, but self-efficacy, you know, as we get into point number eight here uh, and thinking about their own thinking, you know, kids need to be able to do that. They need to have that self-efficacy that they are confident in their in that subject area um, and they need to be able to think about what it is, you know, how they're learning in that subject area and what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. I don't know, Maya, you got an opinion on, on the, the idea of metacognition or building self-efficacy in the classroom as well? You know I do, Joe. I am a huge, huge advocate for metacognition. And, you know, I, with my high school kids years ago and with my college students now, I, I use that as pretty much a final exam, right? So they're they're thinking back about their learning through the course. And it's at first I was like, is this too easy? Is this a cop out? They're just having to write what they think about their thinking. And, and um, I realized in prompting them to really do a reflective deep dive, especially when we're talking about students who are moving into being teachers that that's such a critical learning component to think about the way that you process information as a learner yourself. And then if you're a teacher thinking about how you facilitate that in others. And so, yeah, I think it's a really, it's a really important piece and it is a mindset. I mean, you have to, you have to find the value in that to take the time to integrate it into your classroom. And I, we don't teach it very well, so I don't know that we do that as educators in general. Well, Maya, I think you bring up a great point uh, as far as do we do that to the, to the, at the level we need to starting out in kindergarten. I think we do have a, a pretty good idea in kindergarten. You can grow up and be anything you want to be, but then we quickly start to put some parameters around that as they move through elementary school. Well, you're better at this, you're better at this. Well, then that doesn't fit into a growth mindset. That fits into that this is just naturally what you have. And so this idea of if a student believes it, they can succeed. Wow. I mean, that's probably not earth shattering, but we probably need to be reminded of that on a daily basis. And we need to remind our kids of that on a daily basis. You know what? You really can work at something, get better at it and learn. Uh, we may learn different ways. I may say it to you in the wrong way. Somebody else might say it to you in the perfect way. 
but we can all succeed. And that really is probably the most important thing. So there you have it. The eight strategies that essentially are the backbone of any student-centered classroom. And so we hope that this conversation inspires you to have more conversations with those educators around you and continue to focus on the one thing that we all are worried the most about. And that's our kids. So we'll talk to you soon. Move them on. Head them up. Head them up. Move them on. Move them on. Head them up. And Cowboy Jim on the run. <laughs> <laughs>